Well, we're continuing on. We will be continuing for quite a while on our sermon on the Book of Ruth. And um, I hope that over we do this during this course of time that you are really encouraged by this Book of Ruth. Last week we looked at um, the first five verses of Ruth and I called that sermon The Cost of Moving. The beginning of the Book of Ruth resembled a tragedy After five verses, we see the miserable state that Naomi found herself in after 10 years in the land of Moab. Her husband moved to Moab with his wife and sons, but he and both his sons died, leaving behind three widows with no children. I can't help but think if you try and put yourself in Naomi's shoes at that time, surely you would conclude it would be a very difficult time for her. It seems as if nothing had gone right for her. While she would have known and been taught scriptures that said that God defends the cause of the fatherless and the widows in Deuteronomy 10, and also in Psalms, the Lord watches over and is attentive to the widow, she would surely have thought, well, with three widows living together, this is a prime opportunity for God to show his attentiveness and care for them. But the pleasantness and the attentiveness of the Lord to these widows didn't describe their situation at all. She was in a rut, a rut that seemed hopeless and beyond her ability to bear. Her husbands and both her sons had died and she was left alone with her two daughter-in-laws. All three had no means of supporting themselves and there's no mention of any male relatives at all that could provide and protect them. They were facing some very distressing, dangerous times in this land. Food was scarce And Naomi was living as a foreigner with no relationships to help her. I guess from Naomi's perspective, she was only seeing loss, sorrow and certain confusion. But from God's perspective, her life was being directed with a purpose and with care. The story continues from where we left last week, from those verses that Tanya just read out. You know, our verses today speak to us about something that we do every day. What is that? Make decisions. In fact, as we get to the end of chapter one, it's all about three girls making decisions. Every day you live, you literally make hundreds of decisions. Every day you are pressed for decisions, decisions, decisions. Make up your mind, choose this or that, but make a decision. Some decisions are easy what to eat or what to wear, while others' decisions can be life-changing. When someone asks you, will you marry me? Or will you take this certain job? Or if you've ever been on a jury and you get asked, is this person guilty or not guilty? Or will you accept Jesus Christ as your saviour? Those decisions are life-changing. Someone once said that decisions determines destiny. Another person put it this way, history is made whenever you make a decision. I know one of my favourite sayings that I read was, whether good or bad, you are who you are today because of the decisions you have made in your life. Our life can be shaped by the decisions we make. I know as a Christian, I know as a husband, and I know as a father, as a worker, and as a person, I am who I am in these areas because of past decisions I've made in my life. Well, from our passage today, we see a decision made by Naomi a decision that not only influenced her life, but it also influenced the life of her daughter-in-laws. Now, we're not told in the passage 
But somehow word came to Naomi that the famine in her homeland had ended. Naomi heard that the land, the Lord had come to the aid of his people and was providing food for them. When she heard this good news, she, like her now dead husband, looked around at her own situation and said, it's time for me to move and return home. This verse takes us back to verse 4, which said, and they dwelt in there for about 10 years. If you remember, I said last week, the word dwelt meant to sit for a time. Well, now the time for sitting is ended. And so the Hebrew word here is stood up. Having stood up from the place she'd been of 10 years of sitting, she, along with her two daughter-in-laws, went out from that place and headed for Judah. No doubt during her time, after everyone had died and she was left alone, these three women would have sat and talked about going back to Jerusalem many times. But now as we get to verse 6, those idle conversations were becoming a reality. Naomi is ready to return home. The imagery is exciting and shows the activity that lies ahead. We're told in verse 8 that Naomi and her daughter-in-laws had packed up and began to go home. Now, we are not told how long they worked for, but we're told along the way something happened. This something is the decision by Naomi that we are looking at today. We're not sure when, but while on the journey, Naomi decides to stop and tell her daughter-in-laws not to go with her. Don't follow me. In fact, she tells them to go home. Three times in this section, Naomi tells Opar and Ruth to return home. I don't know about you, but you know, when I read this, I used to ask myself, why did she do that? Is this a good decision? Is this a bad decision? Is this decision made from a good heart and motives, or is it made from a bad heart and bad motives? Well, in this verse and in this school of thought, we have two schools of teaching. Let me give them both to you. Firstly, some commentaries and scholars will tell you they believe this was a good decision. There is not, this decision is not dishonouring God in any way. They get this from looking at the words she uses. First, they say, Naomi's words are words of care and concern. Her words to them are, return each to your mother's house. The wording is intended to show Naomi isn't their real mother, that they have real mothers awaiting them for their own return. So if they return to their real mothers, then they would experience comfort and relief and welcome and family refuge. Naomi wanted this for them rather than the hardships that they would be expected to face back in Israel. Because she knew as widows, they would be extremely poor and dependent on the charity of people around them. And that's what she didn't want for them. Her statement is direct and her question is obvious. What would be the point of going with her? She is a widow and therefore she is deprived of anything. Without a husband to take care of her, she would remain poor. Without an income, she would be totally dependent on the goodness of others once she got back to Israel. Naomi knows that she's returning to a gloomy and miserable existence. By pleading with these girls, she's hoping to keep them from the same thing. Her words also include a pronounced blessing on them and an acknowledgement of the sovereignty of God. In her plea, she asked Jehovah to deal with these two faithful daughter-in-laws just as they have dealt with her. She's asking God to bless them and to stand by them. 
in the same way. Sorry, I think I'm one. Yeah. In the same way that they've blessed and stood by her. So as you can see, she said these words out of care and concern. That's why you read next that she kissed them goodbye and began to weep loudly. This shows more care and concern that she had. It shows the passionate and sad way that Naomi is separating herself from these two cherished daughter-in-laws. Do you know, unlike our Western way of hiding our emotions, the opposite is true in the Middle Eastern cultures. There is often, often an unrestrained showing of emotions during incidences like this. I got a glimpse of this working in Aboriginal communities around Australia. When there is true sadness, the term lifted up their voices and cried loudly is certainly not an understatement. What I experienced at funerals was people crying loudly, singing loudly and shouting at funerals, something we don't see here, but it was quite common practice over there. I can't help but think this is what's happening for these three women in this verse. But we're told they're not only weeping loudly, they're lifting their voices. They're shouting at her. We will go back with you to your people. So it seems the words of care and concern aren't working. She's saying, go back to your mums. Don't come with me. It's going to be bad. But they yell at her, no, we will come with you to your people. So now, instead of using words of care and concern, she turns to words of law and logic. She tells them her chances of having sons is non-existent. Now, for us today, this seems like an odd thing to say. I mean, what possible difference could that make? However, when you look at the custom and culture of this time, the statement is perfectly understood. What she's talking about is a practice of what is known as the Leverite marriage. You find this in Genesis 38 and Deuteronomy 25. It says this. If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her to fulfil the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out of Israel. The practice of this day was when a woman's husband died and she was left with no children, her brother-in-law would have to marry her. This marriage was all about land, inheritance and family name. Naomi was telling them that she had no children in her womb so she could not fulfil this cultural obligation, this law. Not only that, she tells them because she's too old to have a husband, that situation will never change as well. So she's got no hope. Although this certainly isn't literally true, it is culturally true. She's an elderly lady by society standards. And on top of that, she's very, very poor. Within her time and her culture, these facts would indicate that no man would be interested in marrying her. But then she raises the level of her logic about this even higher with a hypothetical. She says to them, girls, suppose that even against the odds and against culture and against my situation, I do find a man in Israel and he marries me. Even if this were the case, she said, I would still have more obstacles. Because of her age, she says, I cannot have children at all. Secondly, she said, what if I had daughters instead of sons? And thirdly, she said, if she did have a son, would you be willing to wait and restrain yourself from them? Just on a side note, 
in this verse, she uses the word restrain. The Hebrew word is agon. This is the only time in our scriptures this word is used, this word agon. It means to shut oneself off or shut oneself in. What she's asking the girls is this. Would you remain un in an unwedded state as you are now? In other words, would they completely isolate themselves from having a man until sons came, which could take years, if ever? Obviously, Naomi is using great logic again. The first idea of waiting involves the girls having time and patience, and maybe that's something they might have done, and maybe it's something that they could have done. But the second issue of restraining or keeping oneself shut out is quite a different story. Because of human nature and personal urges, restraining or keeping oneself shut off is particularly harder to withstand. It is something easy to wait for something without any external pressures being applied, but it's another thing to wait for something while being tempted in the process. A person in jail will wait patiently to be reunited with his wife because no other opportunity exists. But the wife who's not in jail will wait impatiently and possibly unfaithfully because the possibility exists to be tempted. In the case of hoping for something for Naomi in regards to family life, there was nothing but friendship to offer. And more than that, if these daughters came with Naomi, over time the relationship would become more one-sided and increasingly a burden for these two daughters. Why? Because as Naomi aged, they would eventually have to take care of her and they would be the one responsible for her. Now, I know that took a bit long, but I just wanted to paint the picture of you because that's what some people teach. Because of Naomi's words of care and concern, because of Naomi's words of law and logics, that's why some say in this decision of Naomi trying to send her daughter-in-laws back home, there is no fault at all. It is rather a sign of a great understanding and a great faith. She's just being wise and noble in presenting them with the exact nature and circumstance of the situation. If they were to come with her, there would be more probably an inconvenience rather than good times. They would probably be more positive um, poverty rather than abundance. And there would be expected sadness rather than hope and joy. They say Naomi's simple understood theology is this. There was no danger in sending these girls back to Moab because the, law was, the Lord was one true God. He reigned not only in Israel, but in Moab as well. And in sending them back, she is relying on his providence towards them. Sounds good? Well, it may surprise you, even ask me doing all that, it may surprise you that most people don't hold to this idea. Most teach, even with words of care and concern, even with words of law and logic, this decision to send the girls home was wrong. And some even go as far as to say it was wrong, done from a wrong heart and wrong motives. Let me explain. It was definitely the right choice for Naomi to go to Bethlehem. Why? Naomi was returning to the land God had given to them. This was where the true and living God was worshipped. And this also was where the true and living God was pouring out his blessings at this time. Then for sure, if it was right for Naomi to go to Bethlehem, then it was also right for his daughters, daughter-in-laws to accompany her. 
but she tried to stop them. Why would Naomi try and stop them coming to the very place the true and living God was, where his children were, and more importantly, the place where God was pouring out his blessings? What child of God wouldn't want to take people into that situation? I mean, it'd be like someone coming up to you and asking you this question. Hey, I'm a new Christian. Is there a place I can go to learn more about this Christian and God stuff? And you don't tell them about church. Or if someone asks you, I'm new to this area, what time does your church service start because I'd love to come? And you don't tell them. I want as many people in our church as we can hold. Not because I want big numbers, but because I want people to know the great Heavenly Father I know. I want people to know how much Jesus has done for me and that he can do it for them as well. I want people to know what a difference it is to have the Holy Spirit living inside them. I want people to know the love, grace, blessings of God is something that I wish everyone could experience. I've made this comment many times in my short time here. I believe the best place for a person to learn, discover and experience those great blessings of God is in a church. No way would I stop anyone from going to church because I believe this is where people come, the children of God, a family, come into this. But Naomi did. Naomi stopped them. By Naomi stopping her daughter-in-law, she's pretty much done the same thing as you or me, stopping someone experienced the love and grace of forgiveness for themselves or learning about God in the church situation. But she hasn't just stopped them. By telling these widows to go back to their own hometowns, remember, where is their hometown? Moab, God's enemy. Naomi tells them that this is where they should be. She's encouraged them to go back to the place where the common practice is to worship false gods. Would you tell anyone to go to a mosque? Would you tell anyone to go to a Buddhist temple to find God? Well, that's what she's done. This ungodly decision would lead her daughter-in-laws back into her old heathen religion. As I said, it used to perplex me as to why Naomi would tell her daughter-in-laws to stay in Moab a land where they worshipped idols, where heathens reigned and where ungodly men and institutions were in control. Making the decision to tell these girls to go home was certainly bad advice. She didn't start out that way. They all left. There, she's walking with them along the road. It says they set out for Judah. So there she is, she's walking along and bang, something happens. She stops and starts to plea for them not to go with her, but to go home. Why would she do that? Why would she change? Was it really care and concern that led to her decision? Or was something else on her mind? Well, I can tell you what, comments, what some commentaries say about this decision. Now, obviously, we can't be sure and you may disagree and that's fine. But this is what they say. Some teach this. In trying to persuade her daughter-in-laws to go back to Moab, she was trying to get rid of the evidence of her sin. Now, as they state, they can't be 100% sure, as this isn't written. Then why do they come to this conclusion? Well, they say this. If Naomi brought Ruth and Opa back to Bethlehem, they would be living proof to her family and her friends that she'd failed to bring up her boys properly. In violation of the commandments of God, she'd permitted her sons to marry the women of Moab. 
And God strictly, strictly prohibited this. Deuteronomy 7, 3 and 4 says, Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Why would God say that? Well, the answer is found in the next verse. For they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods, and the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. This is what the Lord demanded. But both of Naomi's sons ended up marrying heathen Moabite women. These two daughter-in-laws were daily reminders of Naomi's failure to rear their children up in the teachings of God. And to bring them back would have been culturally inappropriate as well. And so some comment that by pleading them to go back home, maybe she thought if she returned to Bethlehem alone without them, then nobody would know that the family had broken the law of Moses. So while she made the right decision to turn to Bethlehem for survival, she made the wrong decision to try and cover up her sin and not take her daughter-in-laws with you. Now again, I know it doesn't say this. Again, I know we're painting a picture. And maybe they're reading too much into the situation. But you know what? As I read it, I can't help but think in some ways, is there some truth in what they're saying? Because I know when it comes to sin... Covering up is only human nature. I mean, imagine if I said to you, we're going to have a break from Ruth next week. We're going to do a special service. We're going to have a special service. We're going to be, do a special service based on James 5.16, which reads, confess your sins to one another. This is what I want you to do this week. I want you to go away and I want you to write out the worst sins you've ever done. Write them out. If you've got photos, that's great too. That really helps. And I want to make sure you put your name on the top. And then what we're going to do is we're going to come and lay them all out and we're just going to walk through and we're all going to have a read of them. Now, I think if I did that, the next week we would probably have one of the smallest tenders in the history of Pakenham Baptist Church. Or maybe some would come just to see what other people are doing. But most of us who don't want our sins out in the open, well, I know I don't, I probably wouldn't be at that, no problem. I wouldn't be at that service. And perhaps Naomi's a bit the same. She didn't want to take these girls because it was an open display of a sin. So that's the two schools of thought. Was it a good decision? Was it a bad decision? That's up for you to decide. But let me ask you this. Whether you believe it was a good decision, whether you believe it's a bad decision, as I said, whenever I do a sermon... I always try and ask this question, so what? What can we learn? For me, this is a tough one because firstly, how God speaks to you through this passage will ultimately depend on what he wants to reveal to you. Which way do you interpret Naomi's decision? Was it kind and considering or was it a bad decision and she wanted to hide things? Also, if you read or listen to other people's sermons on this passage, you will see that there are hundreds of different titles or main points. Some people say the importance of this passage is to put yourselves in situations where God is moving because that's what Naomi is doing by moving back. Others saying, no, the important thing is put other people's needs before yourselves because by Naomi telling herself to go home, she was putting their needs first rather than taking them back to the poverty that she was going to do. Others say, no, the point of this passage is never turn people away from God because that's what she did by sending them back. Others say, no, 
It is to do, is God mean because she blamed God and her own actions? And others say it's about don't cover up your sins. Are you confused? Well, don't be. Pray and ask God to speak to you however he wants. Maybe he does want to challenge you on some of those things. I said last week God can say and challenge people on different things from the same sermon and Bible verses. That's why so many sermons on this passage have different points of view of the main point. But for me, as I've already stated, I come from the bad decision school of thought. I do think that she should have been fighting to take those daughters with her rather than fighting to send them away. Although that fight wouldn't have been a hard one as they were already on their way. But for me, she should have taken her daughter-in-laws with her because she was going back into the promised land of God. For me, there is one key verse that sums up Naomi in this, and it is the last verse that Tanya read out in verse 13. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone against me. That's her heart. I think a sad fact is when we read these opening verses, you don't hear of Naomi confessing her sins to God and asking him to forgive her. Naomi's decision to return home was right, but it seems her motives may have been wrong. She was interested primarily in food and not fellowship with God. She was returning to her land, but she wasn't returning to her Lord. Sadly, being caught up in this situation, it changed the way she saw God. The tragedy for me in this whole passage is Naomi didn't present the God of Israel in a positive way. She suggested to these girls that God was to blame for the sorrow and pain the three women experienced. In other words, I'm to blame for all our trials, so why would you remain with me? Instead of realising her sin and brokenness, she says, I've got bitterness. And this affected her view of God. And this view affected her understanding of God. This Jewish daughter of Abraham no longer saw God as a God of love and a God of grace. She didn't feel God's blessing anymore. She says, I am bitter. Her message was this. Have God in your life and you'll lose everything. So it seems sadly at this point, Naomi still hadn't repented or dealt with the fact that she was against God's will. And it comes out again at the end of the passage, but then next week's him. Naomi should have said to these girls what Moses said to his father-in-law in Numbers 29. We are setting off for the place about which the Lord had said, I will give to you. Come with us and we will treat you well, for the Lord has promised good things to Israel. This to me is one of the most clear messages of this passage. How do we see God in our time of disobedience? What do we do with the sin in our lives? Well, when we try to cover our sins, it's proof that we really haven't faced them honestly and judged them according to God's word. Proverbs 28:13 says, He who conceals his sin does not prosper, but... Whoever confesses and renounces his sin finds mercy. Do you know, we used to do a talk um, at the campsite that I worked at, and I asked the kids this question. Kids, listen to this. How many times have you done something that's wrong, and you know you've done it, but your parents don't know you did it? 
You know you've done it, but your parents haven't found out about it. And I ask the kids, there's always about 60 kids sitting in our campsite, and I say to them, kids, how do you feel in those couple of days when you know you've done this wrong thing, but your parents haven't found out about it? And I said, give me one word answers, and up goes the hands. And you hear words like guilty, shame, nervous, afraid. Why do we want to live with those things? Because I said, that's exactly what happens. He who conceals his sin cannot prosper. Why? Because they're carrying guilt, they're carrying shame, they're carrying fear. They weigh them down. We should not try and cover our sins. In fact, covering up our sins almost inevitably prolongs the effect they have on us. The most dangerous thing in a person's life is to have a secret life. Once a secret life develops, wicked habits are maintained, nurtured, and Satan uses them as a strategy to keep us defeated. That's why Satan tries us to get you to develop a secret life and cover up your sins. He knows that if he can make you think you got away with it, um, there is no measurable consequences to your sins, then when you face the same temptation later, it's harder to resist. You will simply remember how you covered up your sin before and no one found out. So you'll reason with yourself it's easy to get away with. When this happens, it leads to a habit or a lifestyle that we carry throughout our lives. It is burdenous. It is carrying guilt, shame, fear, being scared. It's just best to be honest and forthright with our failures and let them be a lesson for our lives for the future. Like Naomi, sin can make us feel better and they can also change the way we see God. Solomon was right. We do not prosper when we try to hide our sins, but he was just as right when he said, when we confess and when we reject our sins, what happens? What did he say happens? We find mercy. Wow. You know, for me, this is the whole point of the book of Ruth, finding mercy in your troubled times, finding a kingship, one that comes alongside and saves you. The book of Ruth is all about pointing to Jesus and seeing what a difference he can make in our lives, the mercy we can receive from him. The words of the Bible are spoken to us so that we may have peace in this world that we live in. The words of the Bible aren't there to condemn us. They are to bring us life. The words of the Bible are there to reveal the heart of God seen through his son, Jesus Christ, and through the gift of his Holy Spirit that he gives us. In this story of your life, is this the story that you experience in your day-to-day -day life? One of peace and having the Holy Spirit? How do you see God in your times of disobedience? Do you identify with Naomi and have bitterness? And do you think because of all the wrong things you've done, do you blame God for all the tragic things that are happening in your life? Or are you like Solomon? Have you found mercy and peace? Now, we all know how this book goes and we all know how it ends and what eventually happens. And that should teach us this. Whenever we've disobeyed the Lord and departed from his will, we should confess our sins and return to the place of blessing. Then and only then can we experience and become part of the love story, the same love story 
that Naomi experienced and became a part of in this wonderful book. That, I believe, is our prayer for everyone. I have spoken this morning on the topic of sin and what do we do of our sin? Where do we see God in our times of trial? As I said, are we like Naomi? Are we bitter, thinking that he's to blame for everything that he has done? If you don't agree with that assumption of Naomi, that's great. As I said, there are plenty of theologians out there that think that she's done no wrong. She's still wanting God's blessings. But I just think from my understanding and my human nature that that's the kind of thing I would do from my sin. Where is God in our times of disobedience? Well, let me tell you this. I used to say to kids at my youth group, we have a verse in Romans 5 that says, we now have righteousness before God. Through Jesus, we've been made righteous. I asked them, what percentage of righteousness is that? And they'll say, oh, 100%. So I said, right, so you're 100% right before God. Yeah, we are. I said, what about when you're committing the worst sin possible? What righteous percentage are you before God then? And some of them will say, oh, we drop, or some of them will say, not that great or whatever. And I looked them in the eye and I said this, I can tell you what percentage of righteousness you are before God when you're doing the worst possible sin, 100%. Because Jesus has made the way. We're about to share in communion together. We can only do communion is a great sign to know that we can know that God is not a God of bitterness. God doesn't come and punish us for our sin. God doesn't put tragic things in our life. Because of what we celebrate through Jesus Christ, you can know your sins are forgiven. Do you know, for me, that's one of the biggest deals of Christianity. I think I share with you my daughter struggles because she goes to a church and her pastor just preaches the gospel every week. And I said, Zoe, I'd love to sit under that. The gospel is the greatest thing we have. Does the gospel still excite you? Do you know that you're a sinner? I don't know if you know Jeffrey Bingham, but Jeffrey Bingham is a great theologian in Adelaide, and he used to say this, if God gave us the love we deserve, we'd all be dead. But he doesn't. We have an access. We don't need to be bitter. We don't need to say, guys, if you come to church, your life's just going to fall apart. We have a God of love. We have a God of grace. In preparation for communion, let me share this verse with you. It's a verse we all know. And it is this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way, open for us the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. God wants to clear us of a guilty conscience. We have been cleansed from a guilty conscience. We no longer have to feel guilt. Why? Because we've had our bodies washed with pure water. Let us unswervingly hold on to the hope we profess for he who is promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on 
towards love and good deeds. I preach the gospel because I want to spur you on to love and good deeds. I preach the gospel because none of you deserve the gospel. If you deserve the gospel, then it's not grace. I want to spur you on to get excited every day about what Jesus has done. I want to bring you into his promised land. I don't want to send anyone away. And so as we come and celebrate today, I can ask the stewards to come forward now. And I'm going to just allow a couple of uh, minutes as the stewards coming forward to just spend some time in personal prayer, personal reflection. Where do you see yourself at this table? If you don't know the love and the grace and the forgiveness of God, if you think are still bitter at God, then please just let this go by you. That's quite okay. Because this is only a symbol, but it's a very serious symbol. But if you know the love and forgiveness of God, if you know what it is to be freed from that punishment that you have from all those sins in your life, if you know what it is to know that you've been washed and cleared of a guilty conscience, then I ask you to partake and to share. So for the next minute, just spend some quiet time yourself thanking God for what he's done and prepare yourself for what we're about to partake.